Hello and welcome to Life Beyond the Numbers, the podcast for people who are curious about how to have a more fulfilling work life. We live in a world largely driven by numbers, logic and reason. But how we feel at work and about our work impacts us, our organisations and society. There is a relationship between the numbers of our organisations and the life beyond the numbers. I'm Susan Michrielon, your host. I've lived and worked in many countries. I've met people who love what they do and people who don't. People who bring their full selves to work and people who won't. But one thing that I've learned that is common to us all is that we are all unique and have unique experiences. And it's helpful to know that there are others who think like we do, or have had struggles too, or have gone where we want to go, or can show us things we didn't know. So join me and my guests as we place a lens on the human side of work life by sharing insights, stories and strategies to inspire you to let your uniqueness shine. Welcome to episode 113 of Life Beyond the Numbers. In this week's episode, Dr. Suzanne Evans, David Lee and I discuss the concept of psychological safety at work. This conversation came about because we'd been speaking separately about various things, Henry, and thinking about how the world of work and how the world generally has changed post-COVID. And lots of conversations that we've been having as individuals and professionally with people who are looking to change the way they live and the way that they work based on what they've learned over the last couple of years. And actually, it seems like a really good opportunity to do that. So I'm wondering for each of you in your various work and personal experiences, what sort of things have you been hearing about what people and organisations are looking to do? And how does psychological safety have an impact on any of that? Susan, over to you. (laughs) Thank you, Suzanne. (laughs) Psychological safety has an impact on everything. And first of all, if we just take the whole concept of people trying to figure out whether or not we bring people back into the office all together to work together or whether we work from home or whether there's a hybrid arrangement, if in the first instance, no one feels safe to say what they would like different whether or not it's offered but if everybody says we need to be in the office two days a week and actually for me that doesn't work I can't do that I can't commit to it for whatever reason is it okay for me to ask my employer or to make that case that it doesn't suit me that I don't want to be in those two days do I feel comfortable voicing that opinion and bringing it up and if I do Am I being listened to? And I think in an organization, there tends to be often, let's make it a policy or let's make it a process. And it might work for 80% of the people all of the time, but there's always people that are outlying. And do they have a voice? And is that voice listened to? And because as an employer, It's not good enough, I think, to say, well, this is just the way we're going to do it or this is how we do things around here. Yes, of course, we need to try and get some sort of equilibrium or back to normal or whatever you want to call it. But it's not good enough anymore to say this is how things work. Yeah. That's what I would say. And that's more from my opinion than the people I've been talking to. But I do hear people trying to puzzle out how do we get this right? Yeah, and I think that's a really interesting point that the easy answer is just to do a policy or do a process. That's the easy answer. That The right thing to do, as you're saying, is to have conversations about all of this stuff and to be prepared to be flexible for individuals. But that's seen as harder and more time consuming. And so that's why individuals and organisations don't do it, I think. Absolutely. What do you think, David? What are you seeing on the other side of the pond? 
<laughs> yeah. So boy, there are a couple of great things that both of you were saying that I want to play off of. One of the things, so Susan, when you said, do we want to go back to the workplace or not? I think not only the issue of do I dare say what I really want is so important, but also I really believe that people's experience of how psychologically safe or just even say like how healthy the culture is has a huge impact on whether they want to go back or not they've experienced with the remote working of like not having to deal so much with toxic co-workers or psychologically unsafe interactions i think the other sort of ending the pandemic about the do i dare speak up Boy, over the years, both in coaching and then in doing seminars and hearing people bring up issues around experiences they've had with supervisors, managers, senior leaders, just over and over, I'm sure both of you have had the same thing, just heard example after example of people sharing interactions they had either with their direct supervisor or leadership as a whole that made them just a little less excited about coming to work and doing a great job, or maybe a lot less excited, but they never said anything for obvious reasons. And so instead, they just did as, you know, the popular term now is the quiet quitting, or they literally quit. And so that need for people being skilled at creating psychological safety. I think that if not the most important skill that's lacking, it's top three, in my opinion. Mm. What about you, Suzanne? So I think similar to you guys, really, that there's this real tension at the moment between some organisations just wanting to get back to normal. And what they mean by normal is how the world was prior to 2020. And then mm. the people within the organisation realising that there's a different way of doing things and that during the last couple of years, people have worked differently. And actually, on the whole, it's been fine. And everyone's managed to get their work done. And it's and it's been okay. For people who are office based, of course, for lots of other people, the world has continued as it ever was. And I think that for some organisations, there's this real tension about insisting wanting people to be at their desks but not really knowing why and not knowing why they want to ask people to do that it's because it's seen as the normal thing to do and actually for a lot of employees that might not necessarily be possible anymore for lots of reasons there was a whole structure around people's lives that they created to enable themselves to be in an office five days a week and that could be childcare, it could be pet care it could be all sorts of things and now a lot of that has disappeared so it's not people being awkward not wanting to come back into the office it's actually they can't because the world has changed and their world has changed but where it's falling over and where it's not working is where that conversation doesn't happen so some organisations I'm working with are amazing and they have a view, but they're very flexible and they're prepared to be flexible with people based on their own circumstances. But the ones that are not doing it well are the ones that, exactly as you said, Susan, earlier, have the policy and it's go with that policy or nothing. And there's there's no space for nuance. There's no space for, I, and I keep saying conversation, but actually just talk about this stuff. But then isn't that true of so many issues in organisations that it's just because people don't speak to each other and they don't listen to the other side? And, and that, for me, is at the root. If we're talking about psychological safety, that is at the root. It is a willingness on all sides to be open and to listen. You know, I'm glad you're saying that, Suzanne, because to me it speaks to... Well, okay. First off, you know, both my own experience in having challenging conversations and then working with managers, as you all know, one of the big issues is the challenge that we have with emotional self-management when somebody's really emoting and bringing really difficult emotions and topics. And so it's like, let's not even just go there so I don't have to feel uncomfortable one of the misunderstandings I think sometimes people have when they talk about or they think about psychological safety is like, okay, psychological safety means 
I have no discomfort bringing up tough issues. It's like, well, that's not going to happen. So part of psychological safety is recognizing that by definition, talking about difficult issues is difficult, you know, so it's going to be uncomfortable. And part of my job is learning to manage my own emotional state and my own discomfort with like people not being happy with what I just did or not thinking my idea is great or giving me feedback that's unpleasant to hear. So I I think that's such a major reason why people avoid the conversation. It's like, hey, I tried that once. It was, you know, so painful. I'll never do that again. I completely get what you're saying. And as you're saying it, because it's so true, I'm just wondering if, you know, this term psychological safety, it is a big term and it's kind of hard to know what it really means. And I wonder, do people mix up those uncomfortable feelings? I feel uncomfortable, therefore I feel unsafe. So therefore, I'm not psychologically safe here when actually that's not really, well, it might be what's going on, but it's not the environment causing that. It's your own nervous system, your own what you're bringing to the room that is feeling unsafe. It's not a psychologically unsafe work environment. Absolutely. And I think I loved what you sent us, Susan, beforehand about like, hey, let's each talk about what psychological safety means to us. As I was thinking about that on my walk before we started the podcast, and this is just a beta version of this sort of Venn diagram, but I was thinking about that whole issue. And so at the moment, what I'm thinking of is like, if you could think of three circles intersecting. And so one is the other person. So how they how they act, how they talk, their personality style, et cetera. And typically we think about that, like it's all about them, whether I feel safe or not. So there's that. But then there's another circle, which is the topic. So as I was sort of alluding to before, that just by nature, certain topics are very uncomfortable to talk about, no matter how, quote, psychologically safe we experience this person to be. And then to your point, Susan, the third one, it's like, what do we bring to the table? Our personal triggers, our personal history, and and also, as you mentioned, our nervous system, like some people, like I've got one of those, have like a really sensitive nervous system to voice tone. Or what I experience is harshness or meanness. So I will get triggered by somebody's presentation that somebody who's like really rough and tough and like, ah, that doesn't bother you. know, they're like, I'm safe. Like, what are you talking about? And so that intersection, and it's really important for us to tease out, like, where is this coming from? And not just to project it onto that person. And that's really interesting, I think, because I do wonder whether the concept of psychological safety has got a bit confused because it is a complicated term. Right. And and I think it's perhaps people think it's it creates an environment where, as exactly as you said, David, no one ever feels uncomfortable. That doesn't exist in the world. And so for me, it's about creating an environment where people feel able to speak up. People feel that they can be listened to, but people also feel okay with there being conflict and there being discomfort and there being challenge and uncomfortable conversations. I hate the word difficult conversations because it just makes me think it gives people an excuse not to do it because it's difficult, uncomfortable. And that's okay. And in a psychologically safe environment, that can happen and but it can be acknowledged and it can be worked through and for me if a, an organization or a team is truly psychologically safe it has the ability to deal with all of that uncomfortableness and all the messiness that goes on in organizations but can do it in, an, in a grown-up way <laughs> i love the way you say a grown-up way oh, oh no that's I, you, I mean you, oh. you've probably both heard me get on my hobby horse about this before but you know we're all grown-ups we need to treat each other like grown-ups and we need to talk to each other like grown-ups and then that's the way forward in so many of these things 
Yeah, and we need to embody it because I think yeah. that's what you were doing there. You were like putting yourself higher in your seat, even as the grown up. <laughs> There's many things that I get on my soapbox about, but that is one of them. But it's so true. The other thing I suppose it's what you said there, Suzanne, but also what you were saying, David. There's taking responsibility for my own feelings and emotions and regulating myself. I have to deal with several different types of circumstances in any day. There is uncertainty coming at me from every direction. Every single day brings new challenges and so on. And I cannot be at work and expect everyone to work like I do. And expect everyone to be on the same page as I am. And it's not about me being psychologically safe. I mean, it is, but it's more than that. It's about what you said there, Suzanne, the team behaving like grown-ups so that we can actually call one another on stuff that's maybe not acceptable, but also feel safe to speak up. Yeah, I think it's noticing that stuff as well. So don't you think a lot of the time everyone, me included, is kind of wandering around on autopilot and actually we all need time to stop and notice and reflect and and if there was more of that going on in organisations, then there would be more time to, to realise that people are coming at this from a different place. It's had a different start to their day. Everyone's had a different experience getting into work that morning. And we need to be aware of that and cognizant of that and know that everyone brings their whole self. And for me, that's the other thing about psychological safety. You bring your whole self into work, warts and all, and everyone has to be OK with that. Mm. Yeah, two things. And I have a little a little different take with the everyone has to be okay with that. And I sort of like if I can connect it with what Susan said, you said about calling people out. I think, again, one of the, my opinion, mistaken beliefs about psychological safety is, quote, judgment-free zone. And I think there's a difference between like, you know, calling Sally out on her not keeping her commitment to her deliverable for this project or Jim for dominating the meeting. There's a difference between doing that in a kindly way and making Sally and Jim wrong as human beings and having that scoldy vibe. Yeah, I think that's a real distinction to me is really important yeah so I'm, I'm curious what what you two think about that I absolutely agree I think it's I suppose it goes back to my thing about grown up again so often when things go wrong in organizations it's because the the relationship and the interactions it takes people back to feeling like being told off and, and being a child and so there's a way to give feedback to somebody to to point out something you've noticed about what they're doing in a way that that as you say doesn't make them feel like they're a bad person or they're wrong it's it's pointing out in a kindly way and I think that's the key isn't it it's it's doing things with good intention and and trying to treat people like you would want to be treated I think that's my mantra with all of these things think about if it was you and and then imagine how you would want to be spoken to in that circumstance and I mean definitely no school d vibe <laughs> that's a great term I'm gonna use that going forward but if I think back to a team I worked with and there was absolute psychological safety. Now, if you were outside of our team and you heard the way we spoke to each other at times, you might go, oh, my God, those people don't get on with one another. But we were so safe with one another and so ourselves and bringing ourselves to work that our banter could possibly to an outsider sound like a school vibe. But it wasn't. It was a humorous vibe it was a let's kind of sort this out here and now vibe because we were safe enough with each other that it was okay and we watched out for each other we wouldn't we knew where the line was and we were not going to cross that line and I think that comes to boundaries as well doesn't it once you work well with people and there's trust and you build on that trust then the psychological safety holds the group and it's safe 
to bring up when we've made a mistake. And it's safe to kind of, you know, make funny remarks about the fact that somebody's made a mistake and laugh about it and so on without without anyone feeling that they've been called out in that way you know so when I said called out I meant more in that kind of humorous fashion as opposed to the scoldy vibe (laughs) and that's really interesting I think Susan because I'm assuming that part of that process of coming up with or, or feeling comfortable in that sort of environment is that that was discussed and it was it was talked about. And I think where these things don't work is where the teams don't communicate to each other about boundaries and expectations. And then you have a situation where, you know, those sorts of conversations and the humorous conversations tip over into something that make people feel uncomfortable. Yeah, and humour can be used in a part oh, for sure. Yeah. As both of you are talking about this, it makes me think of giving an example, sort of like a hypothetical example, but it's based on similar experiences that I've had. So let's imagine somebody is new on your team. And so they have that banter. And let's say somebody is teasing them and you're all like, oh, we're loving on each other and it's going great. And that person's like, oh, wow. And so to me, like an example of psychological safety and it sort of in action is and actually just quick context it's funny sometimes when i hear people who either live grew up in the uk and come to the states or live for a while in the uk come to the states they'll say how people in the states oftentimes don't get the uk banter like they take it seriously and like oh you're in my face and everything it's like no we're this is you know so so Imagine it's somebody from the U.S., you know, and and they're like, oh, my God, they're coming at me and and this is mean. So to me, like a psychologically safe team. And so the scenario is, let's say the U.S. person who's now working on your team being brave enough to speak up and and question like or to say, like, wow, that felt like a real put down of my idea you know, was that your intent? So even though they're like, like I'm the odd one out here, they're brave enough to say it and share their experience, but not, you know, wag the finger. And then your team, instead of like, oh, lighten up, that's just how we roll, making that person wrong, being able to hear it and then, oh, let's talk about it. And maybe the takeaway message is, Option A, like, okay, maybe we'll dial it back with a U.S. person until they get with a program, or or I should say, and or let's say the U.S. person like, okay, I need to stretch and grow here and learn how to, like, I, I get it that their heart's in the right place and this is fun. This is a growth opportunity for me to be flexible, to work well in this sort of atmosphere. So that's like some of the dynamics, at least that I see around psychological safety. I'm curious, any thoughts? So I would say with that, it's kind of like you're a kid at home and, you know, and and you're growing up and the guest is coming for dinner and you're all told to be on your best behavior (laughs) as you welcome the stranger into your house or your aunt or whoever it is. And before, you know, after a while and everybody warms up, then it's okay to go back to how we were. So I think, you know, it's horses for courses. And I do think cross-culturally, and I've worked in a lot of cross-culturally teams, we have to be really, really mindful of what works and what doesn't work. And the team should be strong enough because I think that's the whole point. The team have that strength of character to actually change how they interact with another to make sure that everyone feels included. So if we have to change how we behave, then that's what happens because I suppose it's like a football team or any other team. They're always going to modify when a new striker comes on. They'll change the formation on the pitch or whatever it is. And I think that is the beauty of a team who works well together, is that they are never going to let anyone feel uncomfortable. Other than some conversations are going to be uncomfortable, but they're never going to let somebody suffer needlessly. And I I would certainly hope 
that that is the case myself. Yeah, I would agree. It's funny, your example, David, triggered a memory in me of when I was very first working, so kind of graduate job straight out of university. And I joined a particular team in this organisation and I was like the lowest of the low. I was I basically spent my time doing photocopying and, you know, carrying other people's briefcases around. And um, I'd done like loads of photocopying. How hard could that be? And I went off and, and presented this pile of stuff to kind of the senior person in the team. And he took one look at it and he threw it on the floor and then started jumping up and down on this work that I'd done, shouting at me that I'd put the staples in in the wrong way so that they should have been on a slant and I'd put them on straight and everyone was laughing and the rest of the team thought this was the most hilarious thing that they'd ever seen. And I can remember just standing there thinking, first of all, what the hell is happening here? I don't understand what's going on. And secondly, I want the earth to open up and for me to fall in the hole. It was so mortifying. And I realised later that actually that's just as a team how they were. But because I was the new person, I was like, what is going on here? What organisation have I joined? And I think I hadn't been with them long enough to observe these kind of behaviours. He meant it, by the way. He was very upset. I had to redo it all. The staples were wrong. But it was how he was. Now, I mean, that's not okay. But I think if it had been a better team, someone would have said something. I might have said something. You know, someone more senior may have gone, hey, mate, that's not how we do this. But nobody did anything. And so it it left me feeling very vulnerable and very concerned about this career that I'd chosen for myself and whether it was actually <laughs> what I wanted to spend my life doing. Stickling. <laughs> I don't do so much of that anymore. <laughs> I've been promoted. (laughs) (laughs) But that triggers one for me then, because I remember my first audit job and I was out with my senior. So he was two or three years ahead of me. And then the partner came out to to review the work that we had done. And I hadn't a clue what I was doing, like not a notion. And I had asked the senior to show me and it was like, followed last year's file. I mean, those jokes are actually true. And they say, what did the auditor do? You know, followed last year's file. But <laughs> it still didn't make sense. And I just wanted someone to explain it. So then I would know what I was doing. And this guy was unable to do that. And then the partner pulled me up and he asked me why I had done something the way I had done it. And I gave this explanation because I didn't know what I was talking about. And he looked at me and he said, you have no idea what you're talking about, do you? And I said, no. And whatever. And it just went downhill from there. And it was basically like, I don't ever want to see you on one of my jobs ever again. You know? And what, what amazed me, and I think this is something that I really took from that day, was the audit senior never, ever had my back. He was the boss. He was my line manager. He was in charge. And I swore on that day that I would never let anyone in my charge feel the way I felt in that moment, that I would never allow that to happen. And I always stood between the more junior members of my team and whoever was the partner or whatever. And that was not a psychologically safe environment at all to be in. Nobody was treating another person like a human being. I think that's what it comes down to often, isn't it? It's just about treating all of us as humans. So I I absolutely agree. The question I continually ask myself, though, is why do organisations not do this stuff? Because it's clearly important. It's important in terms of keeping people for recruitment, for retention, you know, for productivity, engagement, et cetera, et cetera. So why, why, why is it not happening all the time? I've got a few thoughts. I, I thought <laughs> yeah, you thought you would. And, Oh man, there are just so many neat, like loose threads going on. So Suzanne, when you talked about the importance of noticing and reflecting on, and for me, When I do programs on constructive conversations, really, I would say my major focus is like, I don't feel like I'm super skilled at like, if somebody reacts in a really difficult way, how to come up with a a quick response. Like I'll say I have delayed intelligence. 
the the responses come later, you know, hours or days, not in the moment. So that's not my strong suit, but my strong suit, I believe at least encouraging people to look at how do you show up and how can you create psychological safety as much as possible for others? And it gets back to something that, well, both Susan and Suzanne mentioned about the behaviors of the people in power. One of the little quotes or mantras that I believe in that is part of your really important question, Suzanne, about how come this stuff doesn't happen is power often brings immunity from feedback, but not reality. And so you think about when people are in positions of power or they have a real powerful personality, they don't get a lot of feedback around like, that was really rude, or I didn't really appreciate that. And so there's this illusion that there's no consequence to behaving badly, yet we know there's huge consequence. You just see the global low engagement levels and all the stories we've heard over the years of people leaving because of mistreatment, et cetera. And so there's the effect of power. And I also wonder, so here's one of my little theories from, from back in my being a therapist days. And also the research on cults is one of the things that happens in cults are also like fraternity hazings is that self-justification to resolve cognitive dissonance. Like this must be a really valuable organization to be part of given I, I tolerated all this mistreatment to be part of it. Like there's lots of psychological research that shows that strengthens commitment. And so one of the things that I've, like one of my little theories over the years is especially the real alpha personalities who tend to rise to the top, the only way for them to not have real cognitive dissonance over all the ways they were verbally abused and bullied is to convince themselves that, hey, that's just the way it is and shut down emotionally so they're not constantly resentful for how they've been treated. And so now they're shut down in their dealings with other people and they've justified that type of behavior. So like the ridiculous behavior, the guy stomping on the report, any adult thinking that's appropriate, like what kind of bizarre world have you created in your mind to justify that? But we all know of iconic leaders Steve Jobs, for instance, who behave badly. And that's just like, oh, they're just a genius. And that's just who they are. So those I'm curious, like what your theories are about, like, why behavior that that doesn't create psychological safety is so prevalent. And I would like follow on from what you said, David. And I was thinking exactly that about the guy jumping up and down and throwing everything on the ground and how disrespectful and how like conceited to think that this is that important. It's not a life and death situation here. It's a few staples, you know, <laughs> speak to me like <laughs> to treat me properly. But I suppose Knowing what I've learned about myself in the last number of years, I never knew what I didn't know, right? I didn't know that sometimes when I behaved badly, as we might look at it now, or triggered, that it wasn't automatic. Even the fact that I would often cry in a meeting, not because I felt unsafe or anything, but this was a conditioned response I had to being frustrated. And once I learned different things about myself and how I could regulate my own behavior and be responsible for my own behavior, it wasn't them that made me cry. I made myself cry in reaction to what was going on. If you extrapolate that out to every single behavior that goes on on a day to day, we all have these conditioned tendencies or conditioned responses that we've adapted and made part of who we are 
from childhood, most likely from childhood in our response to a situation. And then that is how we respond or react. And we don't necessarily know that we have any autonomy or any, I don't know what the, the word, but we don't realize that we have control over it, maybe. That like we, agency? agency? Thank you. Agency is a great word. That actually, if I take responsibility for this, I can do something about it. And instead, we say, David annoyed me. Suzanne got the staples wrong. Oh, my God. <laughs> and it's that kind of thing. So it's very easy to push it all out. And then my behavior, like you said, self-justification. And I think you don't even need power for that. You couldn't be at any level in the organization to justify your behavior. And we don't know what we don't know. So if you don't know you can do something about it, how do you know? I think that's a really important point. That There's a, a big gap, isn't there, sometimes in people's understanding of, of how much control they have over their reaction to things. And I think the other thing I was thinking about when you were talking is sometimes if you've experienced that sort of behavior yourself earlier on in your career, then you think that that's an okay thing to do, or you realize it isn't an okay thing to do, but because it happened to you, then you, you're going to do it to the people who join after you. And I think there's an element of that. I never jumped up and down on anyone's piece of work. I just want to put that out there and I couldn't care less about staples, but I do think there's an element of that. It's like, it's, it's part of the process. It's character building, et cetera, et cetera. And I think it's breaking some of those traditions and some of those behaviors we've talked before about courageousness and, and courageous conversations but I do think this is where courageous conversations are really needed which is where in an organization there are examples of this sort of unsafe environment psychologically unsafe then somebody needs to start having those conversations about this is not how we treat people and we want to do things differently let's start talking about what that might look like it maybe this is a great place to transition to what are some of our recommendations? What are some of the things that we do to have those conversations as well as to foster psychological safety as we bring up issues? I think that's an excellent idea. I think for me, I'll go first. I've talked about reflection already, but I think it's about creating a space for that in organizations all the time so you know a lot of the work I do is around big change projects that are going in place and they're so forward focused often and process driven and project plan etc cetera, etc cetera. and there's no time to stop and think how is this going are, are we working the way we want to be working are we achieving what we want to achieve so I think in every team for every individual in every organization there needs to be time during every day to reflect and, and it's really difficult because we've got to a point where people are stuck on Zoom calls all day long. And that's not good. It's not good individually. It's not good for the organisation. So I think it's about creating space for reflection, creating space for conversation. And in the world that we live in now, where people are working hybridly, that's even more challenging because people might not necessarily all be together. So it's about finding opportunities to have those water cooler conversations, to have the, the various discussions and reflection that we need, but doing it in a way that if not everyone's in the room, everyone can still feel included. And for me, very much about taking responsibility. We tend to, in organisations, put things on HR. You know, when it comes to people, we think for some reason that anything to do with people belongs with HR. So I have a problem with David or Suzanne and I go to HR rather than actually facing it myself. Now, fine to go to HR to have a chat with somebody and maybe play out the scenario. But really, if I'm feeling I have an issue with someone for whatever reason it is, whether I don't know how to give feedback or I need to sit down with them and have a conversation about the way they behaved and talk to somebody, then I need to learn how to do that. And I need to take responsibility for that. And if I am a line manager, I need to make sure that anyone in my team can come to me about something they're having going on in their team as well. So I think it's a bit like, I say, it's a bit like the sacrificial lamb. If there is no psychological safety, then offer yourself up first. 
open up, be a bit vulnerable, show people that they can trust you, that this is a safe space. So even if it's just psychological safety between two people, then that is just as important to start it and to change a culture than nobody listening when you're being when you're talking and nobody speaking the truth and actually opening up. And I think being comfortable with being uncomfortable and it sounds counterintuitive but actually being able to have a little conversation this is what I would do anyway I would have a little conversation with myself about what was coming up and the fact that actually the feelings like those knots butterflies whatever they were maybe having to go to the toilet 50 million times before sitting down to have this conversation they varied (laughs) That that was part of the process. And actually, the best thing I could always do in any situation was think of the person in front of me. Stop thinking about me and think about the person in front of me and put my focus on them. And if my focus is on them, I will be there for them and I will manage myself. And if they get up and storm out of the room and whatever, then deal with that then. But mostly... When you when you connect with another human being on a human level, they will respond in kind. And between you, you will get through it. I don't know if I answered the question. Oh, no, a lot. I'm giving you a round yeah, of applause. Yeah, yeah, a lot of great stuff. Boy, yeah, I wrote down a bunch of thoughts. When, when you mentioned about the, the, the sacrificial lamb, I love the saying of go first. So like not cut in front of the line, <laughs> uh, but to, to, yeah, to be the role model. So let's say for instance, asking teammates for feedback, like the way I presented that idea in the meeting, was that clear? Did I go on too long, et cetera? Like I, I really want to improve my communication. Like, let's say something like that. When I led a training team in an insurance company, and when I came on board, I, I had I said to the team, my, my little speech, you know, trying to create psychological safety before I knew it was a term. I said something like, you know, obviously my job is to bring out the best in you. And if I'm not doing that, I'm not doing a good job. So if I'm doing anything that makes it hard for you to do your job or makes it unpleasant, please let me know. And also, even though I'd never do it on purpose, since I'm imperfect, if I say something that hurts your feelings or bugs you, please let me know. So just like to put it right out there. And obviously they didn't immediately start giving me feedback. They're like, oh yeah, right. I'm going to do that. They've been in the work world long enough to not bite that hook. But I, I would check in with them and demonstrate through my behavior that I was really serious about it. I think another hopefully practical tip, and actually I, I, like unwittingly used this when I when I asked, I wondered if it would be good for us to transition into is that sort of like low key way of presenting an idea versus you think about people who say their point of view in a really like bossy, overpowering, this is what we need to do next. Like that's not very inviting of other opinions, et cetera. So that more low key way, especially let's say the leader of a team, what do you think about such and such versus this is the direction I think we should go. Anybody disagree? (laughs) You know, something like that. Another point when Susan, you were mentioned about like, it sort of like it begins with us, like, you know, and then I think Suzanne talked about the childhood stuff too is a friend of mine, Fran, I love something that she says, and I still continue to work on this, is I'm not going to require other people to be a certain way for me to be at peace internally. And isn't that awesome? So shout out Fran Leoto. And so when he acts in a way that I find irritating or off-putting, or I'm like, you know, quote, feel psychologically safe. It's, it's a two-way situation. It's, I think, okay, what do I need to do so they can be that way? And maybe I still challenge them on it, but they're not running my emotional state. They're not running my nervous system. That's my responsibility. 
that's like a lifelong practice for some of us. And I'll just do one other hopefully practical tip that I try to pay attention to. If I do have to bring up a topic that's sensitive or feedback that's not going to be fun to hear, I really try to modulate my voice so I know the message itself will be hard and how can I like soften my voice? So it's not a double whammy of a like intense tone of voice or irritated tone of voice along with a hard to hear message. So like softening the voice tone. So those are a few things that I, I think of. I think that's, they're all really excellent points. I was thinking when you were speaking, David, about broaching difficult subjects. And I think for me, the other thing I've learned over the years is to be really clear about if there's something difficult that needs to be talked about, the temptation for us all is to get all waffly because we don't want to say it. So we just keep waffling round and round and the person then leaves the conversation thinking, well, I don't really know what that was about. And so I think it is a kind of planning for thinking about it in advance. I definitely agree in terms of tone of voice and situation and where you choose to do it. So think all that through in advance. Think about how if it going back to the point I made right at the beginning if it was me and I I was having to be told this thing how would I want to be told it and then try and do it in that way um but then also be prepared for it not to go to plan because it, people react and and I think for me one of the big reasons why people choose not to be open and to invite questions and to invite inquiry is they're afraid of the emotion and they're afraid that someone will cry or someone will get angry so I think be prepared for that and also be prepared for things to go wrong. As you said, David, we're all human. We all make mistakes. And I've said stuff in meetings before which didn't land well and I should have said it differently. And then I think it's about going, yeah, you know what? You're right. I could have said that better. Let me just take a pause. Let me think about what I want to say and then I will say it in a better way. It's OK to do that. You're not a machine. You're not a robot. You're a human and you can get things wrong and you just apologize and then you move on. And, and I think it's having a plan, but then be prepared to be flexible. Absolutely. And I'm because I'm just going to build slightly on that as well, because I think the other thing is allow for silence. Yes. So when you do deliver something, if it's bad news, you're giving somebody and that's a difficult conversation to have especially if you're letting someone go, firing them or whatever, let it land, give the person the space. Because what I've found is people will ask that question over and over again, but why, or tell me again what I did or whatever. And I think it's not hurrying that process along, but being there and responding to what that person wants, which I suppose is that, you've called it have that plan but be ready to kind of deviate from the plan it's being okay with what's unknown being yes. okay with what's going to come up in conversation and responding to that not keeping to your agenda God, I have to get this point across and I wish they'd shut up now because I need to get to my next meeting it's like actually respond to the person in front of you and you probably have to say very little actually usually in those conversations as well because the other person will do the talking and you keep to what you said Suzanne the clarity keep it really really clear what you need to say and no waffle yeah I agree someone said to me once about facilitating that you should plan tight but hang loose <laughs> so, so you have a plan but then you kind of go with it on the day and see where it goes absolutely so if somebody listening to all of us would like maybe a resource or they want to know more about what we've been talking about here, is there a resource around psychological safety to find out more that you would recommend? I'll, okay, I'll go first. So one is listening to the talks of Dr. Amy Edmondson, awesome talks. And also I wrote a book called Dealing with a Difficult Coworker. <laughs> Fancy that. And <laughs> a big part of it is all around like, how do you, yeah, what Suzanne is saying, how do you prepare ahead of time so your message is clear, non-antagonistic, and you create an inviting message? Brilliant. Suzanne? 
I, I would agree. I think anything, obviously, David's book's awesome, and anything that Amy Edmondson does is is always brilliant in this area. I think she explains it really well. There's a book, but also she's written loads of articles. So I, I think for me, that's where I'd always point people and and to, to use that as a respected author in the field rather than going too much into the kind of cod psychology of of psychological safety. You know, let's let's go straight to the horse's mouth with it. Yeah, and I would absolutely agree. I think the TEDx talks or the TED talks that Amy Edmondson does are fantastic. And I haven't read her book, but I've read the articles as well, like HBR. And I think the other one that I think is really interesting is Google and their project Aristotle. So that was something that came out in a New York Times magazine a couple of years ago. And it's basically Google found with after doing a survey of 37,000 employees that psychological safety was the thing that made great teams. It was the top thing that made great teams. And they didn't expect that (laughs) either. That's not what they thought would come true. And I think that's a very well-written article and one that anyone could kind of dissect and learn easily about psychological safety. And it's a great article also for listeners who want to introduce that topic in their organization because it's such a credible company, research project, et cetera. One quick little interesting backstory with Google is I remember when Google first started, how the two founders, um, because they were not necessarily like super emotionally intelligent skillful people, their idea for fostering innovation was provoke intense conflict in their teams. And they like fueled that fire. And then as the years went on and they got a little more wisdom, they realized like, oh, maybe being super confrontational (laughs) isn't necessarily the best way to foster innovation. It's interesting that they came around to the psychological safety point of view in the end. It just shows you there's there's space for everyone to move <laughs> into the psychological safety space. Exactly. And I think the key there as well is, and we've said this throughout, it itself isn't bad. It's how it's handled and it's the environment it's in. And you can have conflict and disagreement in a psychologically safe environment. Shall we leave it there? I think that was an excellent conversation absolutely fantastic well thank you very much thank you thank you thank you so much for listening i hope you've enjoyed the paths we traversed on today's episode if something rang through for you be sure to let me know or maybe you can share this with someone in your life who would benefit from listening too and if you enjoy helping others i'd be so grateful if you would leave a review so that people who might also be curious about their own life beyond the numbers can discover this podcast too.